Good morning again. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And today, at long last, we will finish the Hall of Faith. We've been here for a while, but I think it deserves it. Such a rich chapter. I don't know that we've done it justice, but uh, we've given it the old college try and pray that God will use it in your life. And really, it's the perfect time, isn't it, to be walking through this as we discuss whether or not we want to move ahead with uh, going to a place that's going to stretch us financially, that's going to give us a, a uh, permanent location. It's a matter of faith, isn't it, where we walk by faith and not by sight. And really, that's what we're asking you today, what we're asking ourselves. Do we believe God is not just leading us in this way, but He will continue to provide and that we will, uh, we will prosper in this place? And so, such a pertinent uh, chapter in the Hebrews for this time. And of course, God is sovereign, He's perfect, and so that is no accident at all. We already, already read our text this morning. We'll be looking at verses 30 to 40. Went through 29 last week with uh, looking at examining the life and the ministry of Noah. So we'll be looking today at numerous figures and how they exhibited what I'm calling courageous faith, which is I'm, what I'm calling us to. Because I think Scripture calls us to that and what I'm calling myself to. And so uh, let's ask God now uh, to add His blessings to this uh, to this time together. Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have before us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. God, give us grace and faith to believe and to be courageous in the face of all manners of adversity. Uh, Father, I pray we, we would trust you more today as a result of having engaged this text and it would continue to engage us uh, not only today but in the week and the month and the years ahead, Lord, that these figures would challenge us uh, to look to a big God who is righteous in all His ways and kind in all of His works. That is you, God. We worship you today and pray that you'd work in us uh, to bring about your glory and build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So now, we've seen here in Hebrews chapter 11 that really when you get right down to it, faith is believing God's Word fully. Without hesitation, believing God's Word, trusting it fully. Because when we're trusting in God's Word wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y, wholly, fully, we're trusting in God because it is His Word. And so that's what I'm asking you and asking myself today as we reflect on our hearts in light of this text of sacred Scripture. Are we trusting God? Do we have this courageous faith? Of course, we know we don't, right? That's why we need grace. That's why we come here on Sundays, on the Lord's Day. It's why we need His Word and prayer every single day. But it really comes down to this. We either trust God and His Word on the one hand, or we trust our own intellect, our own instincts, our own attitudes, our own worldview. Really, that's it. As Billy Graham used to put it, and it's, it's kind of funny to think about, but it's really true. He said, either back to the Bible or back to the jungle. That's right. And that's really it, isn't it? <laughs> that's true. And of course, we, in our country now, we think, boy, that's really, really true, isn't it? We need to pray for revival in our land, revival in the churches of this denomination and in our, our country, the evangelical churches. But in the end of the day, we only have two options. And so the men and women in Hebrews 11 took God's bare word, I mean, just His word, His commands, and often his, his I almost called his visceral word, his, his audible word to them. He they took him at his word and risked everything to obey it. Are we willing to take risks? 
We're about to ask you to take a risk today, right? Or are we willing to risk it? We know it's a risk. But it's only risk from our perspective. It's not risky from God's perspective, right? Because He's sovereign. He's ordained everything to happen today as it's happening for the foundation of the world. Even what I just said. Everything. Either that or He's not God and the atheists are right. So we've got to stop pretending, don't we? That's the God of Scripture. But these figures here in Hebrews 11, we've been looking at all these weeks, they did what genuine faith does. They obeyed. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? Sung that all my life, and it's true. But am I, am I living that out? Am I living in that courageous faith? It's willing to risk everything for God and for His glory and not my own comfort. They did not ask for a miraculous sign. That's not faith. We see television stations, particularly these cable channels, the pastors saying, we're going to see a sign from God, right? We're going, to, we're going to demand it. We're going to blab it. We're going to grab it. And God's going to show us. But that's not faith, is it? I mean, any fool would sign up for that. God's going to show us. He's going to send down fire. He's going to kill your enemies. And you're going to, well, yeah, I'd believe that. Well, of course, right? That's sight. We're called to believe something we cannot see more than that which we can see. And that's really a summary, a good summary of Hebrews 11. They're looking for a city they can't see. Looking at this city and saying, I see it. It's bricks, it's mortar, it's pavement, it's sidewalks, it's people, it's cars. And yet that city is more real than this city. The city of God is more real than the city of man. And if it's true, we must trust God, right? Because needing proof from God is sinful doubt. That's the way of the world. It's not trusting God's word wholly, completely, fully. Of course, sometimes in Scripture, God does give explanations and reasons for His word, but not usually. Not typically. Sometimes, but it's very rare. But nonetheless, we are obligated to obey as His people. Old Testament people, right? They were obligated to believe. New Testament people, that's us. The New Covenant people of God we are obligated to trust Him completely, without question, without needing a sign. Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed in John 20, 29. So faith is the opposite of the world system. It's opposite of human wisdom. It often requires accepting from God things that we don't see by logic or reason. Now, I want to say something about that. Christianity is a reasonable faith. I totally, absolutely believe that. R.C. Sproul is right. There are good reasons to believe, and it is logical. I'm not saying we just disconnect our brains and make a leap of faith in the dark. That's what I'm saying. But sometimes, I mean, because God's Word is so different, and God is so different than we are. He's alike, like us in some ways, shares some of our attributes, but He's so much different than us that, that we can't comprehend His Word. It makes no sense to us to do something, right? And yet we're called to do it because He's God. And these Old Testament saints, these heroes of the faith, they obeyed God's word because they had a right view of God. That's really what we're calling you to here this morning. I don't mean about the vote, maybe about the vote, but no, this is the right view of God, right? Do you have a right view of God? That's what we're after every single Sunday. Do we, have we oriented ourselves biblically toward God or are we worshiping a God of our own making? Because that's not the God of the Bible, that's an idol, and that God will let you down. That God will leave you. That God will forsake you. If it's God of health and wealth, well, He's going to leave you. Your health is going to break down, right? It's going to leave you. I want to ask those people that wear glasses. They'll put on, their, you know, put on their, their bifocals to read Scripture, these health and wealth prophets. I want to say, why don't you just heal yourself, physician? <laughs> why are you wearing glasses, right? We wear glasses. We're living in a fallen world. 
And so we will trust God or we won't. And these people, they trusted God because they knew God. John MacArthur said, faith believes and obeys God because faith knows that God cannot lie, cannot make a mistake, cannot do wrong, cannot be defeated, cannot be surpassed. That's the God of Scripture. A God like that can be trusted. Do you trust Him? Does your life reflect that? I don't mean on Sunday morning, right? I mean the other six days of the week. Does your life reflect that you trust God and you take Him at His word? That's what's at stake here. I mean, in fact, if God is like this, if He is sovereign, if He is holy and righteous and faithful and just and omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent and much, much more, He's incomprehensible, finally and fully, then it makes no sense whatsoever to do anything else but to trust and obey Him. I mean, unbelief is blind to this kind of God. Skepticism walks by sight and not by faith. If you're, being, you're a skeptic, and some of us are skeptics, right? And there are times in our walk with God we're probably skeptical, but then you're walking by sight and not by faith. You want a sign. You have His Word. But this God who's, who's all these attributes, who's perfect in every way, He deserves our utter obedience and allegiance. And so this understanding of God is what motivated these Old Testament figures in Hebrews 11 to do the things that they did, sometimes radical things we're going to see today. Is your faith a radical faith? I don't mean you're going to stump your chest and say, I'm radical. I read a book about that once, and I don't mean that. Are you more interested in your comfort and your safety than you are living all out for the glory of God? Because perhaps the supreme mark of genuine faith, I'm going to argue from this, based on this text, is courage. Courage. When things are going well, it's easy to follow God. Just about anyone's willing to do that, but genuine faith is often costly. And so our faith is proven. Genuine, when we face sickness or persecution or rejection or injustice or the loss of a spouse or a child, and yes, pandemic. And yet, we still stand with unwavering trust in the living God. I can't wait till we get a pulpit. <laughs> Sorry. And are we courageous because we're just brave people? We come from a certain place and they're just, we're like that, that's how we are? No. I would argue at the end of the day we're all cowards. We don't trust God. There's a source for our courage and it's faith. Of course, we learn in the New Testament, right, that God gives what he demands. He gives us the faith to believe, right? But the source of our courage is faith. We do not have great faith by having great courage. No, on the contrary, we have great courage because we have great faith in a great God. Do you know this God? Or do you know a God of your own making? That's, that's at stake every Sunday here. There are certain kinds of gods the world loves, right? If the world loves the God, it's probably not the true God. But in closing this chapter with what I'm going to call courageous faith, the author fast-forwards 40 years after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt the fall of Jer- to the fall of Jericho and the beginning of Israel conquering Canaan, which of course is the promised land, under the godly leadership of Joshua, one of the great, one of my favorite Old Testament figures, because he has courage, that he just demonstrates courage that I want to have, but so often lack. So I want to see four truths this morning from the text about courageous faith. And this is kind of hard to rein in, but so here's, here's my best shot at it. Okay, we'll see what you think when this is all over. But here's number one. Courageous faith trusts God's word even when it makes no sense to do so. 
You have God's word. You know it's claims on your life. It's demands, and you must trust and obey. But boy, it doesn't make any sense in light of your present circumstances. God just doesn't understand. So we see here the, 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 the fall of Jericho. The city of Jericho dominated the landscape and the entrance to Canaan, to the promised land. The city walls would have been massive structures. They wouldn't have been these little, you know, chain link fences we have on our ball fields or something like that. No, these would have been massive structures, probably 20 or 30 feet uh, deep and uh, wide enough at the top for two chariots to run side by side on. They were, they were, uh, they were built to protect cities from, uh, from enemies, and they were built to stand the test of time, to, save, to protect the city forever. Think about the Lord of the Rings and think about uh, the various wars there. Think of uh, the keep and things like that at uh, Helm's Deep. That's what I'm trying to think of, that big fight. Think about that. That's what the city walls look like, only probably more uh, sturdy even than that. And God says, go in there, take down the wall, go in there and conquer the land. How? Well, the book of Joshua begins with God, first of all, transferring the authority of leadership uh, from, from Moses, who's died, to Joshua, the new leader, the new Moses. And so they're to go in and conquer Canaan, the promised land. So they're going to need tanks and jeeps and bombers. Right? They're going to need all these weapons. You know, They're going to need the M1 tanks. They're going to need F-19s. They're going to need lots of you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles, all that stuff, because this is the big, the big land, right, to go in and take it. So that's what God's going to give them. All right, That's what we're going to see in Joshua. So Joshua is supposed to capture Jericho. That's the first battle. Right? So go in and take your tanks and jeeps and go in and, and do this, right? But Joshua, along the way, encounters this mysterious figure, calls himself the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, that's the army that matters. This is God's five-star general. You know what I think this is? I agree with a lot of commentators. I think this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I think this is Christ, a Christophany, call it, an appearance in the Old Testament of Christ, the commander of the army of the Lord. Who else would it be, right? Who's the commander? Well, it's Jesus He's the Douglas MacArthur, the George Patton, the who have you. Of course, he's far greater than him, but he's the five-star general. That's who Joshua encounters. He told Joshua, the Lord has delivered Jericho into his hands. You're going to win. Boy, you like that, don't you? You'd go bet on that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Man, we're going to win. Victory is assured. It's going to come to you. It's going to, victory is yours. And then he gives instructions about how to conquer the land, and they're bizarre and certainly must have made no sense at all. He says, have the people march around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, blowing the trumpets, march around seven times and the walls are going to fall down. What happens next? Well, turn with me back to your left, Joshua chapter 6. Way back toward the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But just beyond that, Joshua chapter 6, verses 12. And we pick up the narrative here, or verse 15, sorry, to 21. On the seventh day, so we fast-forwarded that seventh day, they marched around the city uh, seven days. And so on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day. And they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown their trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Now mark this too because we'll get to this in a moment. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But 
you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest you have devoted them, you, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. In other words, idolatry. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. They're going to keep, get to keep the good stuff and give it to God. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. What a bizarre, what a bizarre incident here, right? What a strange thing. Go, and so we leave your tanks and your jeeps and your, your F-19s, and you leave all those intercontinental ballistic missiles, leave all those off and go in and march around the city, and then say the word, shout, and it's going to fall, blow the trumpet. And they say, all right, we're going to go with this because this is what God said. And they do. And what happens? The walls fall down. And, of course, there are liberals who love to say, well, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. We don't, this is not, you know, there, there's no way this is going to happen. Well, it is ridiculous if you don't believe in a supernatural religion. If you don't take God at his word, it is ridiculous. And that's what I'm saying. To some of us, sometimes we can say, well, this is, you know, we sing little, uh, little limericks about this and Bible school and things like that. We thought that was good for childlike faith, but we know this doesn't really happen. But it did. You say, well, what about the Hebrew? Well, the Hebrew says the same thing, you know. Right? <laughs> There's nothing. You can't undo this. And so, so often God's word looks ridiculous to us in light of our current circumstances. Right? They needed a big army. How are you going to take Jericho, this massive city? Well, an army, well, no, march around, I'm going to give it to you. God did it. They trusted his word. And I think this is perhaps the most classic portrait in all of Scripture for the people of God obeying his word when it didn't make sense at all. It seemed very fanciful. But their faith drew forth the power of God. John Chrysostom, a great preacher, one of the greatest preachers in the early church, said, Assuredly, the sound of trumpets is unable to cast down stones. Of course. Though one blow for 10,000 years. But faith can do all things. Faith can do all things. Indeed it can. And so there he begins with Jericho and Joshua. Joshua, the people of God, believe God, it happened. Then in verse 31, he, 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 he tells us about Rahab the prostitute. Let's go back to our text. He says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And we've read about this back in Joshua 6 already, sort of the outcome. Before the battle of Jericho, Joshua sent in spies on a recon mission, reconnaissance to, into Canaan to, to get the lay of the land, to see how big the soldiers were, how, how ferocious they were, how many of them there were. Are they outnumber us by how many? We need to strategize here. We need some strategery here, Right? So it sends them in. They're very cowardly, by the way, for the most part. They go in eventually. Rahab, a prostitute, hides them at, the, at the, perhaps the cost of her life. If she had found out, they certainly would have killed her. But she hides them because she trusts God. But surely to her, think about this. It seemed impossible that the children of Israel, this rather pathetic band of, of brothers and sisters, could capture a mighty city like Jericho. I mean, come on. You're going to come in here. You're going to blow the trumpet. You're going to... Right, right. She believes God, right? She trusts God. 
and she's in the hall of faith, a prostitute, and she trusts God, and, and she's in the hall of faith. You see this? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of people the writer of Hebrews could name. And I love to point out Mary, and Mary was a great woman, not in here. She's worshipped by one denomination, but she's not in here. Rahab the prostitute is. That's interesting, isn't it? Very, very interesting. Of course, Rahab needs a Savior just like Mary did. Just, and I'm not belittling Mary by any means. I'm just saying that, you know, Mariolatry is idolatry. Surely this is impossible, but look at the faith she exhibited. As one commentator put it, she staked her life on the belief that God could do the impossible. So Rahab asked the spies to guarantee her that her life would be, and her family's life would be preserved when the city was conquered. She believed it. She believed what God was going to do this. And so she arranged to tie a scarlet cord in the window of her to mark her house so they would know this is her house, her family's house. And commentators have long understood the detail of the threads, color, scarlet as a type of the atoning blood of Christ, and maybe it is. I like that. I think that's possibly true. We see those echoes all through the Bible, don't we? Consistency in Scripture. So when the city was conquered, we've already read, Rahab and her family were saved from destruction. I mean, from a purely human standpoint, Joshua and Rahab, they were profoundly different people from profoundly different backgrounds. Both trusted the Word of God and His power to save. And that's all that mattered, right? I mean, we're the body of Christ, and we're, you, all, you all are from every, all kinds of different places, all kinds of different backgrounds, right, and socioeconomic levels and all this, but, boy, we believe in the power of God to save us. We are living proof of that truth, aren't we? The gospel's truth. I mean, believe me, the fact I'm standing here preaching to you, that is, <laughs> that is proof positive of God's grace and its reality working in the heart of the most wretched sinner who ever lived. I can assure you, and that's not just preacher talk. But God gave them instructions that, from a human perspective, made no sense at all. But they trusted Him His Word, and God, of course, kept His promise. I love how He transitions to 32, being a preacher. I love the transition. He says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me if I tell of... He's a preacher. It's a sermon, right? It's, it's, it's 10 till 12. The Baptists have to get to the chicken, right? We've got to get over here to, you know, wherever you go for lunch to, uh, uh, I don't know... <laughs> uh, Chick-fil-A, well, they're not open on Sunday. It's where you'd be if they were open, right? So he's saying, time would fail me. I've got a lot more. I've got like six pages of my notes left, but it's 10 till 12, and so I've got to, I've got to, I've got to land the plane. I love that because I feel that. <laughs> and I don't often uh, skip six pages, as you probably can guess. But time would fail me. It's getting to the end of the sermon. It's getting late. The wise preacher knows when to land the plane, and so... Number two, courageous faith. Courageous faith trusts God in the face of insurmountable obstacles. Verses 32, first part of 35. And he introduces us to six courageous figures here in verse 32. And they span the era of the judges through the united monarchy. So we had this weird period after God gave the law to Israel and they're constituted as a nation at Sinai. And then the period of the judges come in and they're the leaders of the Israel. They're not kings they're not presidents, they're not potentates, they're judges, and they are called, they're very, you know, your mileage varies on the judges. Many of them are wicked and evil, just like the kings of Israel and Judah. But the kingdom's still united. This is before David, and, and leads up to David, of course, through the united monarchy. So we meet Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Gideon is a, one of God's generals, gave Israel victory over the Midianites, and an army of just 300 men. God reduced it from several thousand to 10,000 to 300 and said, now go, go get them. And what happened? 300 men, they, they, they routed the Midianites. How'd they do it? With all those tanks and jeeps? Finally, God brought in all that stuff? No, not hardly. 
God armed them, this motley few, with the torches and clay jars. Torches and clay, that was the weapons. You hear that? Torches and clay jars. And what happened? He said, well, go in there and blow the trumpet and break the glass and they'll flee. This brave, robust, Midianite army, well-trained, well-armored, well-equipped with firearms, they're going to flee. And what happened? They broke the glass They were thrown into chaos by God, and they fled. Gideon trusted God. It made no sense, right? And it looked like this army of thousands and thousands, absolutely unassailable obstacle. And yet God gave the victory. Barak, Judges 4 and 5, led a small army from only two Israelite tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun, to defeat the mighty army of Sisera with its 900 iron chariots, which is kind of their version of the M1 Abrams tank. This was a fierce piece of technology. They could ride up and they would come and get you. They could run you down in these chairs. And what they would do once they ran you down, we won't even speak of. This was their intercontinental ballistic missile. I like to say that. I'm on that this morning. ICBM, nuclear warhead. This is what it was in the day. And God did it. God did it through Barak. Then Samson, we know Samson. Samson was kind of the Jethro Bodine of the Old Testament, I think. He was, man, he was dumb as a stump. He had all this stuff, and he's a big old guy, and he would do all this stupid stuff. I think, man, you're eating honey out of a lion's carcass. That's just disgusting. You know, and then you tell all these dumb riddles, but man, he's in the hall of faith. He was deeply gullible, to say the least. We'll call him gullible, okay? I'm going to be nice here. Deeply gullible, known for his fatal weakness for foreign women, especially one named Delilah. And yet for all his incredible physical strength, one of the strongest men who ever lived, he was made weak, but he was also empowered by the Spirit of the Lord and defeated the entire Philistine army with what? Killed a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. Talk about unordinary means. The jawbone of a donkey made him mad. Well, you don't make Samson mad. <laughs> well, a thousand men. Scripture says it, right? And we just think, yeah, well, it's like a fairy tale to us. But it's true. This is true, okay? We're, we're, you're on board with me. I know you are doctrinally, but, I mean, really and truly, Jethro, I'm calling him Samson, killed a thousand Philistines, the jawbone of a donkey. Only God could do that. Fourth, Jephthah, and this guy, boy, in some ways he was a fool's fool. Judges chapter 11, made a foolish vow and killed his daughter. Killed his daughter. Cut her into pieces. Foolish vow he made before God. He didn't have to do this. But in spite of his awful mistake, he led Israel to defeat the Ammonites. He was deeply flawed, but he was commended for his faith. God's heroes are flawed. I mean, the hero of the story is not the heroes, right? The hero of God's story, the hero of your story is God. It's not you. And even the people here, they're not the point. I'm going to get to that. That's my, that's my punchline. I'm going to give it away before, of course, you know it already. I hope you do. Finally, David. We know David, a man after God's own heart, the greatest king of the Old Testament, a forerunner of Jesus Christ. In spite of his adulterous affairs, his murderous ways, affair with Bathsheba, murder of her husband, he was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us he faced down Goliath in one of the most famous events in the Bible. Everybody knows that story, right? Or at least some of it. Well, maybe not everybody anymore. He faced down Goliath. Why? Because the battle belonged to the Lord. 
not proving you can face the giants in your life. I know we say that. And again, God does allow you to do that. That's not the point. The point is the battle belongs to the Lord. Your battle belongs to the Lord. You say, well, I'm not a very courageous person. I lack courageous faith. Yeah, we'll join the crowd. That's why I'm preaching this sermon. But the battle belongs to the Lord. And that's true in every one of these instances, isn't it? That's a good summary of the doctrine from these six figures. The battle belongs to the Lord. Of course, he would even kill Saul. He was a man for God's own heart. I mean, God restrained him, right? Saul wanted to kill him, the first king of Israel. And he would not lay a hand on God's anointed. He obeyed God, a man after God's own heart, restrained by God. He was the greatest, greatest war figure in the Old Testament, probably. Finally, Samuel and the prophets. Samuel wasn't a warrior, but he fought a battle equal to any soldier's face. John MacArthur said this, he, His great foes were idolatry and immorality. You're more, much more likely to face those, uh, those foes, those enemies, than you are some mighty army, and so lie. He had to stand up in the middle of a polluted society and fearlessly speak God's truth, MacArthur says. His severest opponents frequently were not the Philistines, the Amorites, or the Ammonites, but his own people. He was a pastor. <laughs> really, his own people. And that's sad but true sometimes, the pastorate. Thankfully not here. It often takes more courage to stand up to our friends rather than our enemies. Social pressure can be more frightening than military power. Just look at Twitter, right, for evidence today. You want to pile on somebody, you want to cancel them, shut them down. Just bring out the mob, bring out the, the hangman's jury, and you can flat do it. Samuel faced all those things. He was Israel's last judge. He ministered before the Lord from the time he was a boy, a lad, and he remained faithful to God throughout his life. And he was treated worse than probably any minister has ever been treated in the history of the church. It's called the weeping prophet. I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. Samuel, what they do? A summary of what the other figures did, he gives us in these next few verses, 33 and 34. He stopped, they stopped the mouths of lions. Stopped the mouths of lions. Who's he, who's he talking about there? Come on, kids. Who was in the lion's den? I won't sing the little kids all learned in Bible school from years ago. Daniel. Probably thinking about Daniel. Again, there's other people here. So Daniel throwing the lion's den, trusted God, and God rescued him, right? He quenched the power of fire. I think he's speaking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in part here. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, and they weren't alone in the furnace, were they? Who was in there with them? Who was it? Angel of the Lord? Who was that? I think that was Jesus. It was Christophany again. Because, see, you're never in your battle alone, are you? These men knew that. They, Daniel knew that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, O king, we will not worship you because our God is able to rescue us. But if not, we won't bow down to you. But if not. Am I teaching this morning that God always rescues his people? He runs to your aid and your side and gives you rescue in this life? I'm teaching nothing of the kind because Scripture knows of no such teaching. These, these figures trusted God and God acted on their behalf for our good. He goes on to verse 35. Women received back their dead. Two events. A reminder here, I think verse Kings 17. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Elijah had sought shelter with the widow of Zarephath, a woman from pagan Sidon. 
She had trusted God by obeying Elijah's various commands. Her son became ill suddenly and died, and Elijah raised him from the dead. Unlikely, right? And then Elisha, who was sort of like the, the, uh, men, the mentoree of Elijah. He was, he, was, he, he was the new Elijah in a sense. He was uh, mentored by Elijah, the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. He received help from a wealthy woman, a Shunammite woman, able, unable to bear a child. But God blessed her with a son who suddenly died. He had a headache, probably an aneurysm or something. He dies, and Elisha raises him from the dead. God raises the dead. We're going to celebrate that here in a couple weeks. We celebrate every Sunday here, right? Nothing novel or new about that. Not just one Sunday a year. God raises the dead. Do you really believe that? A lot of you have been in your church your whole life. You've just heard this, right? You've heard it and heard it and heard it. But do you really believe it? Enough to stake your life on it. I mean, the point here, these works show that whether the need was political for political victory, helping those in need, receiving promises, overcoming natural enemies, protection from weaknesses, or winning in war, the power to accomplish these things was from God, and the power was received by faith in Him. By faith, God's people achieved what they never could have done otherwise, both in openly miraculous ways and also in more subtle ways or even secret ways. The Lord puts His great power to work for those who trust Him. Are you trusting Him today more than your eyes can see? Rick Phillips said, We might put this in the form of a question. How are we to overcome great obstacles? How do we who are so weak find the strength our circumstances require? What are we to do to overcome tragedies? The answer to these questions is the same. God's people are to trust Him, find deliverance and power and resurrection in the God we believe and trust. Now, if the preacher of Hebrews had stopped here, it would have been easy to conclude that becoming a Christian exempts you from suffering. Okay, that's why I've said it already. I start, I'm already starting to feel the tension. I hope you are too. Well, that's the prosperity gospel. But it's not because look what he turns to next. Becoming a Christian by no means exempts followers of Jesus from suffering in a fallen world. In fact, I would argue that when you become a Christian, your problems have just began, just begun. Really? If, if you understand Scripture or God biblically and understand the gospel and the claims of the gospel, to take up your cross and follow Him every single day, your life may get a lot more difficult. And sometimes I know we live in America. You know, we have phones in our pockets and things in our cars. I mean, we just, it's like magic, isn't it? We ask Siri anything. I'll say that in Siri. I'll come on like I did one time. What am I going to say next, Siri? We have all these things. It's hard for us, isn't it? When we suffer, it's, it's easy to assume that this is the norm. A bunch of middle class people come together on Sunday morning, you know, wearing our best or a cool list, or whatever it is that we do, and we come here, and it just goes well for us. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's Christianity. That's not a worthwhile Christianity, is it? About 95% of the Bible is suffering. Lord willing, after we finish Hebrews, we're going to do a series on God's providence, from Esther and some story of Job, or Joseph and Job and some other places. Because that's so, so helpful, I think. 
And so verses 35 to 38, we see this truth. Courageous faith, my third point, trust God in the face of suffering and even martyrdom. He says they were tortured. It's a litany here. He's going to fly through these. I'm going to fly through them too. So hang on. They were tortured. Some of the faithful were tortured to death and refused to gain the release by denying the faith. Most scholars think the writer has in mind here the Maccabean Revolt. Protestants, we don't know quite as much about that because this is uh, told in uh, the book 2 Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, which is in the Roman Catholic Bible, not the Protestant Bible because it is not Scripture. But a group of Jews who lived around 167 B.C. stood up to the Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted them by requiring them to eat swine and sacrifice to Greek gods. And so in 2 Maccabees, seven brothers were tortured and murdered in succession when they refused to deny the Lord. What was done to them? Listen to this. Their scalps were cut off. They were scalped. That's just the beginning. They had various body parts cut off, probably one at a time, like a finger at a time, a toe at a time, cut your nose off, rip one of your eyelids off. But for them, Jesus was worth it. Is he worth it to you if it comes down to that here in this country? We're not near that. I mean, we complain about things. We're nowhere near that. I don't know that. It may not happen in my lifetime. It may never happen. I don't know. Their tongues were torn out. Well, that would really hurt me, man. They were fried over the flames. Most of this happened while they were stretched over the wheel of a catapult. But they accepted death rather than deny their Lord. What does your life say about what you think about Jesus? Jesus asked Peter, what what think you of Christ? I'll ask you this. What does your life say about your Jesus? Is your Jesus the middle class American dream Jesus? He's really popular among evangelicals, right? Especially... At times, you know, I've talked about the Great Awakening and how I think, I've, you know, we go down that, we're, well, we go down the other, there's another side too. We go down and we, you know, we worship certain leaders and think, well, we're Christians if we do that. And that's no more right. That's, that, that is just as ungodly as the other extreme. We want to stay out of those extremes, don't we? Stay out of those extremes. What are you, what would the world think about your Jesus these men, these figures in this Maccabean, the Maccabean Revolt accepted death rather than deny their Lord. Because they would believe, they believed that one day they would be raised from the dead. Not just on Easter, but every day of the year. It wasn't just a sentimental relic from their past life. It was life unto life for them, this doctrine. Accepted death. That kind of sacrifice and commitment makes no sense to the person who does not know God. No sense at all. Us meeting here this morning and, and, and teaching out of a book that's six to 10,000 years old makes no sense to the world. You're not going to please them. Stop trying. You're not going to receive their hand claps if you live the Christian life the way Scripture calls us to live it with this kind of, I'm not calling it a reckless faith, but a courageous faith. I'm not saying be reckless. That's a different thing, okay? I'm not saying we'll just run out and you know, say, I love Jesus this much and run out in front of a bus. That's not what we're saying. That's not very smart. I think Samson did that once. <laughs> okay, maybe not. So they underwent mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. Of course, this is true of a number of Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah, I'd written the weeping prophet in the wrong area in the margin, by the way, and I even looked at it and I said that and thought, that's not. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, not Samuel. We misspeak sometimes, sorry. But he was both emotionally and physically abused. 
But his weeping wasn't for his suffering. His weeping was for the people's rejection of God. Are you weeping over your neighbors who are going to hell, facing God's wrath this very day for their sins? Or are we just saying, well, we don't like those people. We like to cancel those people. Evangelicals, we, we, we cancel too. We just don't call it that, right? We expect everything to live, everybody to live the way we do, to be exactly like us. And when they're not, we want to cancel them. But Jeremiah, no, he, he, was, he was broken and wept over the sins of the people. He endured in his call, proclaiming the truth of God in spite of all of it. Of course, we can think of Paul, can't we? Paul was a jailbird. Our great, my great old New Testament hero, well, he was a jailbird. I love to tell people that. They'll say, well, you know, these evangelicals are a bunch of middle-class white people do this. No, 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 my, our heroes are jailbirds. <laughs> right? They're the scum of the earth. The apostle Paul introduced you to exhibit A. That's our heroes. And, and these people were too. Jeremiah, the people did not love him, to put it mildly. Many of you are going to be pastors someday. You're in seminary, and I got news for you. Your people are not going to love you either all the time. Jeremiah, read Jeremiah, read 2 Corinthians. That is your resume. Now, I'm very fortunate to have a, a wonderful congregation here, and we're, we've got a lot of unity. I'm very thankful for that. That's not always the case. We're kind of spoiled here, I'll be honest with you. But God's not going to give you that until he makes you, breaks you first. I can assure you, Jeremiah is exhibit A. Of course, we know this from church history, don't we? This, this idea of suffering. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley burned at the stake 1554 by the Roman Catholic Church basically because they disagreed with their view of the Lord's Supper and some other doctrines. They were willing to die rather than to capitulate, than to compromise. They were going to die for the truth. We think, well, boy, that was silly. That's a tertiary doctrine, some of those things. It wasn't to them. It was a matter of life and death. I believe we sell truth far too cheaply in the evangelical church today. Truth is not for sale, whether on the right or the left. We don't sell it to either side, do we? We'd better not be willing to lay down our lives for it. Think of John Bunyan, one of my great heroes, as you know, 12 years in jail. Beginning in 1661, was arrested for preaching the gospel. And they said, John, if you'll just not preach the gospel, we'll let you out today. You can go home to your wife and to your little children. It'll be great. And he said this. He said, you let me out of jail. I'll be preaching the gospel by this time tomorrow. You can come and pick me up. Now, that's courage. That's a little brassy, and I like that. <laughs> I want to be that. I'm not sure I'm that, but boy, that's it, right? Because he loved Jesus. And God used him throughout the Pilgrim's Progress and Grace of Bending, the Chief Among Sinners, all those, his testimony, great, great works. Bunyan, a good old boy, I loved him among the English Puritans. <laughs> the Coptic Christians, remember back in 2015? 21 men led out in orange suits, very vivid in my mind, you saw that picture and that made the news, of course. Led out to the beach near Tripoli, beheaded because they wouldn't renounce the, their faith in Christ. Beheaded by ISIS, this radical Muslim group, because they wouldn't say, Jesus is not Lord, Allah is Lord. They said, no, Allah is a false god, Jesus is Lord, and off with their heads. That's courage. That's courage that believes in the resurrection of the dead. Just looking for a city that is to come. Are you looking for that city? said so they were stoned, they were sewn into, they were killed with the sword. Maybe it's speaking about Isaiah here. Church tradition says he was sewn into when the people became so irritated at his conviction or preaching that they cut him in half. You don't have to catch me to do that to me, but you probably could. <laughs> you can shave some off me. But he preached. We have Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. What a powerful book, right? We have that. That is his legacy, and what a glorious legacy it is. We'll preach through that someday. It'll take a, like, Ten years, probably, at the rate I go. 
or longer than that. There's a lot of stuff in there. Glorious. They went about in skins and sheep of sheep, goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. He's, he's getting to the end here. I mean, prophets like Elijah, they're, they were weird. You know, their clothing was made out of sheep skins. They get John the Baptist, camel's hair, and ate locusts, and honey. That's how the prophet's assessing them here, how they're, they're assessed in verse 39. The world was not worthy of them. In the same way they were treated unjustly and suffered unjustly, injustice is not a modern invention, by the way. In the 21st century, you get that idea sometimes. It's not true. It's always been in the fallen world. But their presence in the world was itself evidence of God's grace. They were there, and they were preaching, and they were, they were killed, and they were tortured. Evidence of God's grace. Because they proclaimed the gospel to sinful people, and they deserved better than the people they preached to. Why did they all endure? Well, because like Paul, they could say the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Remember Luke 9. Jesus said, if anyone to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. These figures here, they lost their lives. Latimer and Ridley, they lost their lives. Bunyan was willing to lay down his life. The Coptic Christians, they laid down their lives. If it comes to you, and this is what's at stake, what's it going to be? You may not have time to think about it or pray about it. So I'll only pray about it and get back to you. <laughs> oh, no. For whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. It's proof of the authenticity of your faith. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, cars and houses and land and wealth and notoriety and fame, and yet loses his own soul? What's it going to profit you if you gain everything and lose your own soul? Nothing. Nothing. This is the authentic Christian life. Finally, and this is where we always end, and I love where he ends here. In verses 39 and 40, courageous faith is rooted in the finished work of Christ. He says something odd almost to end it here. And he's recapping verses 13 to 16 here, I think. He says, and all these, all these figures, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Okay, so they're saved by these people, the new, these, us, no, 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 that's not his point. Not at all. Or else I wouldn't say courageous faith is finished through the finished work of Christ. <laughs> that's the point. He's teasing out verses 13 to 16. Here he says, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Okay, they were promised this in the Old Testament. They didn't, had not yet received it. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, they saw it from a distance. And the types and shadows, the Old Testament, Old Covenant worship in the Old Testament, they saw it from afar and greeted it, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is where he's going back to that. And here's what he's saying, I believe. The something better is the new covenant. Remember, that's our context. Our broader context is the new covenant is better because it's, it's enacted on better sacrifices. Jesus, the better high priest, Jesus. A better prophet, Jesus. A greater king, Jesus. It's the new covenant. Apart from us, in the new covenant, they would not be saved. That is to say... Apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, there is no hope for them, no matter how strong their faith, no matter how many sacrifices they make. 
Paul, remember 1 Corinthians 13, so if I give my body to be burned, if I'm martyred and I have not love, then I, it's, it's useless. You can be a martyr and go to hell. But if you're a martyr for the glory of God in Christ, then it's glorious. Martyrdom doesn't save you. Christ does. So this is trust in his finished work, which is where we come in. They looked forward to the faith that would come. But brothers and sisters, let me point out something. We don't look forward to something that will come in thousands of years. We look back on the finished work of Christ. Which is my way of saying to you, we have every advantage. Why is our faith so weak? Why are we so cowardly? Why am I so cowardly? Why am I? Why are we so cowardly in the face of suffering? Why do I mistrust God? Why does not my faith not stronger? Their faith looked forward to what would come, but we look back. Now, this is not to say they were second-class second Christians. They were not at all second-class believers. They weren't. I mean, they courageously struggled and suffered, and counting on the, the salvation they knew would someday come, that is not your situation. You're looking back on a historically verified event, and it's happened. And Jesus said, it is finished. And you're looking back on that work. Are you trusting in that? Is he your treasure and portion forever? Not just sort of a blind faith, but are you trusting, resting everything on that? Are you willing to take up your cross daily and follow him? Because if you're not, I think scripture is clear about where you stand. You can have Sunday school, Southern Baptist religion, or whatever, Presbyterian, whatever your tradition is. You go into church like me, a lot of your life you can have that kind of religion, and still it will profit you nothing. You, will, you can have a kind of courage, a kind of, thest, kind of a chest-thumping machismo. You know, you're kind of a macho man, and it will profit you nothing. So to make you look foolish probably a lot of the time. That's not what I mean by courage. Courage comes from trusting in God who is, a, who is almighty overall, the God of Holy Scripture. This is what motivated their faith. And we look back on the God who's finished the work of Christ. That motivates our faith and our courage. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The hero of today's passage in all of Hebrews 11 is not the men and women whom the writer of Hebrews enrolled in the hall of faith. It's not even, not even their faithfulness. That's not the, the heroism here. The hero book of Hebrews 11 is God and the hall of faith is a tribute to his faithfulness to his people. Not their faithfulness. Yes, their faithfulness, but that's not the point. It's his faithfulness. We're going to learn in chapter 12, right? We look, we look back and see not how faithful they were. Yes, they were faithful, but God was faithful to them. He was the cause, the ground of their faithfulness. So what does it mean? What does it mean? We have this great cloud of witnesses. What does it mean that God is faithful? It means this. It means we can face every obstacle in life, just like these Old Testament figures did, even some that look absurd, every moment of life in a fallen world with courage, with courageous faith in a sovereign holy God who keeps all his promises will never leave us nor forsake us. We can say with the psalmist in one of my favorite psalms, and I want to close with this and a couple more comments. For the righteous will never be moved. Look at this. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. I don't like surprises. I'm probably afraid of bad news. Are you? We shouldn't be, right? His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. The 
righteous, that is you, if you're in Christ, will never be moved. My question to you and to me is, what are we afraid of? Serving God all out. We've just come through a pandemic, and there's been a lot of fear and a lot of, you know, trembling. I've got to tell you, this body, you've done great. I've not seen the shrinking back. I've seen it. You know, you've heard me weigh in on it from the pulpit here. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful our congregation, you uh, have just faced this with, with courage and grace. And I'm very thankful for every one of you. We've all had to make some hard decisions during this time, and I respect that, and you've done it. I've had conversations with so many of you about, you know, everything from masks to quarantine to everything else, and boy, you, you've, we've wrestled with this stuff, and that's what a Christian does, and I'm grateful for you. And you've, you've born of the elders. We, it's not been easy to lead during this time. I can tell you that, to, you know, this moving target, but you've, you've been very, you've prayed for us. I know that, and you've been, you've been uh, very patient with us. I am grateful for that. So I see this here, and I'm thankful for it. But don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted, Christ Fellowship. Don't take it for granted. Continue praying for this courage to continue to develop a rock-ribbed faith in God like these figures did because of Him. How do we do it? Well, we study, we pray, study God's Word, we pray, be faithful members and servants of the church. We read good literature, read good books like R.C. Sproul's book, Holiness of God. <laughs> Can't think of a better book. Or John Piper's new book on the providence of God. Read those things. That'll, boy, that'll put steel in your backbone because it's biblical, that material is. It'll teach you about the God who, who these figures trusted. So are you willing to risk everything for Christ? Do you love Him or comfort more? Are you really trusting in his promise, resting on the finished work in the finished work of Christ? Let us pray then that God will give us this kind of faith and this kind of courage, no matter what life brings to our church and to us as individuals and as families. Let us pray he will give, give us grace to trust him no matter how things appear from a human perspective so that we live a life unshackled from fear, from an ungodly fear, free to attempt great things for God, and live all out for his glory. Let's pray. God, instill in us this faith. I wish I could say as pastor that I'm the paragon of faith, Lord, but so far too often I am filled with cowardice. So give me faith as a leader, as a husband, as a church leader, as a husband, a father, as a Christian, to shine like a, a city set up on a hill. Give us grace, Lord, to live out this kind of rock-ribbed faith. I'm thankful for Christ Fellowship Church. I'm thankful for these months and what I, I've seen your grace so evident and so strong and alive and vital in, in, my, in these people here, Lord. I'm grateful for that. But, Father, as James said, we need more grace. So pour out your grace upon us and get, help us to trust in the finished work of Christ every day and attempt great things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.